from Kurtco Media. Someone asked me the other day, how are you different? And I thought about it. I said, you know what? This is how we're different. If the other events are the queen, Auto Royale is the band queen. That was the voice of Paul Mathers, our guest today on Cars That Matter. This is Cars That Matter. This is Robert Ross with another episode of Cars That Matter. Welcome to my guest, Paul Mathers. Paul, good to have you on the show. Great to be here, Robert. Thanks for having me. As a matter of fact, here is, in this case, quite a few thousand miles away. We're speaking to you from Oxfordshire, and of course, I'm in Los Angeles. So the time's a little different. I'm drinking water. Hopefully, you're having a cocktail or a beverage of a little greater substance. Paul, you are the event director of Auto Royale Concorde d'Elegance. So we're going to talk about all things automotive on this show that have to do with classic cars, showing cars, and what the future of car events is all about, especially your Auto Royale. Well, it's my favorite topic, so let's jump in. Speaking of jumping in, it sounds like you jumped ship because not that I am an expert on accents, but I do not believe you are British. I believe you are Australian. Now, that is a whole different space species of auto enthusiast, isn't it? Yeah, I jumped ship and then I swam like heck, I guess, <laughs> to get here to the UK. But no, I am from Australia. I grew up there and spent most of my life there. And I'm a very recent arrival here in the UK. I've been running Concor events in Australia for sort of 10 years, or I had been before I came here. And yeah, I think it's fair to say that we look at that world of classic cars in a slightly different way or through a slightly different lens. Being a motorhead, in Australia and I guess in your neighboring New Zealand as well is a whole different experience, a whole different way of thinking. I guess if you go back decades before the era of internet and FedEx, guys on those big old islands and continents had to find their own solutions to things. You didn't have overnight parts express to get those parts from the UK or Germany or whatever it was you needed. You had to invent your own solutions. You're right to a certain extent, absolutely. Although Australia was a surprisingly large export market, particularly for some of the British brands. For example, for Vauxhall, Australia was was the biggest export market back in the 19 teens and 20s. Some of those English cars in particular, it's always been quite easy in terms of restoring cars. And it's worthwhile saying, you know, we've got some of the great restoration companies in the world down there in Australia, some Pebble Beach winning restorers like Sleeping Beauties that do a great job. But it's interesting, we are perceived as being a very long way away from the rest of the world and the rest of the community. And I say perceived because I think Australians have a very different idea about distance. If I get on a plane in Melbourne and come to see you in California, a 15-hour flight is nothing to me. That's a couple of movies, a couple of glasses of wine, and a short sleep, and I'm there. <laughs> I'm sure if we were having the conversation the other way, Rob, you'd say, oh, that's so far away. <laughs> well, I've done a few stints to New Zealand in the past, and I have to say it's a bit of a haul, but certainly worth it because there are some great discoveries to be made. Once, of course, I learned how to drive on the wrong side of the road, but that's 
a whole different podcast, isn't it? That'll get you every time. How'd you cut your teeth in cars, Paul, if we can put it that way? Cars have been something that have been around me and my family for longer than I actually sometimes acknowledge. I was thinking about this just the other day, and I was off to the demolition derbies with my dad and the Speedway dirt track racing when I was five or six. And I used to love the spectacle of that. You'd go on a Friday or Saturday night, these little cars would be ripping around the track, throwing up all this dirt, and there'd be a halftime fireworks show. And then you'd get the demolition derby to cap it all off. And these cars would drive around and bash into each other. As a five or six-year-old, I thought that was the best entertainment you could possibly have. I think as a 65-year-old, it's probably still the best (laughs) entertainment I can have. Nothing better than watching that stuff. I remember it as a kid, and it has an absolute eternal allure, doesn't it? It's a little bit primal, but I did love it. And of course, as I got a bit older, it was off to go and seeing car racing, proper racing. I grew up in Brisbane, so it was Lakeside Raceway that we would watch the touring cars race there. And back in those days in the 70s and 80s, we were watching guys race that were real legends in their own time. People like Peter Brock and Dick Johnson, those sorts of people who probably don't mean much to your American audience. But in Australia, these guys are legends. They're up there with Jack Brabham. So it was very easy to go and watch those sorts of people race. And that's kind of the environment that I grew up in. And of course, the great race, the Bathurst 500, as it was back in the day, it was the only reason I was allowed to not go to Sunday school. I was allowed (laughs) once a year to miss out on Sunday school and watch that on TV with my dad. So it was always in my early sort of formative years, that's when motoring became a really big part of my life. And it kind of seeped out of my life and seeped back in. And it was sort of towards later in my career that I actually really kind of embraced the classic motoring side of things. I'd had a classic car for many, many years since I was 20. But I suppose in my late 30s, early 40s, that's when I really started to develop more of a vocation for it than just simply a love of it or a hobby. Well, we certainly want to talk about that car and other cars that you've had in your garage. But we're here to talk about the automotive Concorde d'Elegance. And boy, even the word Concorde d'Elegance, it's a complicated one. A lot of guys call it a concourse. That's because maybe they're not quite so well-bred as to understand how it would be pronounced. But let's talk about all that breeding for a minute, because let's face it, automotive Concorde d'Elegance have become maybe a little bit full of themselves. I think that some of what you say is really true. And that's something that my team and I at Auto Royale have seized upon and tried to address and do it in a really big kind of way in addressing it. But I think Concorde d'Elegance has always been at this very high level of prestige, hasn't it? It's always been about people of great wealth showing off beautifully coach-built cars. And that goes right back to the beginning of Concorde back in the 1930s. Back when new cars were actually the subject of the show. In other words, a guy would bring a new coach-built car and they would vie for the trophies as to which was the most beautiful and elegant. Absolutely. We sort of don't even probably quite appreciate the value of those cars as they were back then. For most people, they were years and years and years worth of salary that one person might have put into a coach builder creating that vision for them. And so it's always been a pursuit of the elite. And that's fine. What I love about going to Concord as a car guy is being able to get a look in the window of the collections of those people. I've always loved going to Pebble Beach, of course, because of the cars that I can't see anywhere else or that I might have only ever gotten a book when I was younger and all of a sudden, wow, there they are there. I remember one year I went to Pebble and they had 12 or 14 of the 16 XKSSs and I went there and I thought, my God, 
God, I've never seen that kind of display before. This is incredible. So you talk about them being a little bit elitist. And yes, they are. What I love is this opportunity to bring normal people into that equation. And I count myself as one of those. Normal car guys and gals into that equation so they can be a part of that experience as well. For me, Concor is not just about collectors showcasing their cars. That's kind of like the little cherry on the top of it. But there's no point having having the cherry without the ice cream. And for me, creating a great concor is about whipping that ice cream, about getting the right flavors and creating an experience that not just a select handful can enjoy, but that a whole lot of people can enjoy and benefit from. Break down those barriers because at the end of the day, one of the things that unites us in the classic car movement is this love, this passion for these beautiful pieces of moving art. And why should we observe class differences when we have that that brings us together? I'd prefer to celebrate that part. That's a brilliant way of looking at the whole car experience because it is more than the haves and the have-nots. These cars really exist for the pleasure of everyone who has a chance to see them and hear them run. It's about the field. It's about the contrasts. It's about the, frankly, maybe the food, the music, and some other fine things that have a lot to do with the lifestyle of classic cars. I think that that's exactly right. You hit it on the head. I was having a conversation a couple of weeks ago with someone and they said, describe Describe what's different to me about Auto Royale. I said, okay, let's look at it this way. Let's say that the average collector of these fabulous high-end cars is maybe in their 70s. When they're in their 20s, that means that they were listening to David Bowie on the radio or the Rolling Stones or maybe even punk. Maybe they were listening to the Sex Pistols. And yet, if they are the people that enjoy Concord, what is the music you hear at every Concord? It's jazz. Unless you want to hear some of the well-worn Bach orchestral suites. Not that there's anything wrong with Bach. I'd take them to my desert island. But let's mix it up a little bit. Please don't think that I diminish any of those other events because I personally enjoy going to them. But I wanted to set out to create something different. I wanted to set out to create something that nobody else does. And to be honest with you, finding the things that nobody else does is actually quite simple because everybody else is doing it pretty much the same way. Well, then let's talk about Auto Royale. And by the way, for our listeners to learn a little more about the upcoming Concours, autoroyale.org is your destination. Tell us about your Auto Royale, when and where, and what's it all about? Wadston Manor is this amazing property that was built in the 1870s by Lord Rothschild. And it was built in the French Renaissance style. So it's quite a fairy tale looking castle. And he built it to entertain. He built it to entertain the glitterati of the day and to house his collection of art and antiquities, essentially. So essentially half a century before Hearst Castle, this was envisioned as the genuine article. Essentially, yes, absolutely. I mean, Lord Rothschild didn't even live there all the time. The house itself that looks quite grand is actually quite small. But what it does is it creates a fabulous backdrop for any event. And we are lucky enough to be the only private event that actually gets to rent this wonderful space. And it has an incredible front lawn where the cars will be placed on the Concours, about 100 cars. And it's just this wonderful immersive space that we're going to be able to create this event in. It's the sort of space that embraces you as it enters it. If I'm not mistaken, Paul, wasn't this the venue for the original Louis Vuitton Classic 150th anniversary? Yeah, absolutely right. And I believe that was one of the first proper Concours d'Elegance here 
in the UK back in 2004. It was only held there for one year. And then I think the brand decided not to do Concord anymore. They decided to go off and do something else. But it's exciting to bring Concord back to Wadston Manor. And it's exciting to do it in a way that is not what people expect of Concord to be. And when people come to Auto Royale, they're going to see great cars and an amazing suite of cars that we've already curated and still more to come. But they're going to get to experience that in a different way. And we're talking about the entertainment, the music, the food, the level of immersion, being able to understand and read the histories of the car, having a downloadable elements as well so you can enhance your visitor experience with technology. And of course, the traders that will be there as well, whether they be car manufacturers or whether they be classic car dealers or whether they be people like some of our sponsors like Meguiar's doing their thing, promoting their involvement with the classic car industry. So it's very commercial in that respect, but it's also quite immersive as an experience. It's not just about looking at the cars for a couple of hours and going home. It's really about coming into this new world of classic cars, being absorbed by it and having those conversations that you get to have when you break down barriers with common-minded people. I think that's exactly what it's all about. The opportunity of engaging your visitors and engaging new visitors is what's exciting. So it's not just a bunch of old guys my age. It's hopefully some new flesh and blood to get as enthused about cars as I was 50 years ago. Well, it's great that you mentioned that, Robert, because our chosen charity this year is a charity called Starter Motor. Starter Motor is a charity that is there to help young people be acquainted with the classic car lifestyle in a sense. That's a great name for a nonprofit organization, by the way. Oh, it's fantastic. So they help young people with their tuition and apprentice placements and the bills that they might have when they're studying. So introducing them to the classic lifestyle is not so much just about collecting, but about careers in that industry, about working on cars for themselves, about driving them. They teach them so much. And these young people, it's great to see them immersed in this world. I came from Australia where I ran a different event for a number of years. And one of the things that I started working on over there was getting schools involved and bringing kids along to that event, to Motor Classica, to get their first experience of classic cars. Because we've all got our own story about our first experience with a classic car and what drew us into that life. And I always thought, look, we've got to encourage young people into this movement because there'll be no one to look after these cars after we're gone. We've often talked about that on the program before, just adjusting a sextet of Weber carburetors on an Italian V12 is a challenge for most mechanics today. That's exactly right. It's great to see these kids getting involved and it's great to be able to support an organization that does that sort of work because let's face it, I think that when we all shuffle off this mortal coil, what we'd like to think is that our legacy is that these cars do continue to survive beyond us, that they do get worked on, that they do get driven. And it's exciting to see these kids genuinely involved and enjoying that experience. How do you start a Concours? I mean, what are some of the nuts and bolts? Can you tell us any of the secrets in the kitchen that let you put these ingredients together? I can tell you, but I'd have to shoot you. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair enough. No, I mean, there's creating a Concours, which the bones of that are fairly straightforward and process driven. You need to find the cars and you need to put them in a room or on a field together and you need to have some judges to judge them. But the questions to ask along the way is, well, why should a collector put their car 
into a concord? What's in it for them? When you start to dig down deeper and ask those sorts of questions, then you start to come up with the kind of event that has to surround the concord. A concord on its own has little appeal, does it? I mean, if I said, let's have a concord at the local school oval, well, yes, we're going to get a very different level of car than what we're going to get at, say, Pebble Beach. And the thing that changes, of course, is that event that is around it. So for me, creating a concord is about answering a number of questions. And that is, what does the collector want out of this? What are you going to give them to make this so unmissable? And how are you going to reward them if they really do have the best car? And how are you going to demonstrate your integrity with regards to judging so that it's not just the most well-known collector, it's not just the most well-known car or the most expensive car that is necessarily going to win, that everybody's playing on the same playing field. That's all really important, I think. Once you answer that question, I think then you've got to say, right, what's in it for the audience? Why should they come? Why should they spend their hard-earned cash on coming and seeing a bunch of cars? Firstly, they've got to be an outstanding bunch of cars. So that feeds back into that whole first question. It's like the answer to question two, see question one. But then it's about building an event around that that has authenticity for your visitors. I want people to leave an event that I run and go, that was really worth it. I had such a great time. We've got to come again next year. And in fact, let's bring such and such. If everybody that left one of my events said that, then I'm doing the right thing. That's absolutely true. And sometimes then the parking lot becomes as exciting as the show field itself. I'll never forget the first time I went to the Quail probably 10 years ago and spending an hour and a half in the car park. I would be going, oh, look, that's a such and such or that's a such and such. That's right. That's right. Paul, we have to take a quick break, but we'll be back in just a moment. Welcome to Life Done Better. Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co. Media, media for your mind. Welcome back to Cars That Matter. You talked about Jags for a minute there. What kind of cars and what kind of classes would you like to see at Auto Royale? Can you give us a glimpse of what's already on the docket and maybe some sort of surprises in terms of classes that we might not have anticipated? We do follow traditional Concours in the sense that we do have that traditional group of classes, your vintage, your veteran, your pre-war, your post-war. Those classes are all certainly there and are competitive classes. But we also have a range of special classes that do distinguish the show from year to year. This year coming up, we are celebrating Scaglietti and Drogo bodied cars. Ah, okay. From the sublime to the ridiculous, I think there. Well, some of those Drogo bodied cars were indeed pretty ridiculous, weren't they? Almost like something you'd imagine from high school auto body shop. In the worst cases and in the best cases, some of the most sublime things on the planet. The Drogo story is one that fascinates me really because essentially all Drogo cars are rebodied cars. He used to rebodied cars that often had been smashed or something like that and create these beautiful pieces of art and they exist as a separate entity to the original car. 
I think that that's quite an interesting juxtaposition to be able to observe. So the Drogo cars are quite interesting. Scaglia as well. XK Jaguars, we are also doing next year to coincide with the 120th birthday of Sir William Lyons and also the cars of Fangio. Are you going to have some static engines on display as well? That wasn't the plan because we're really interested in getting those cars that have got an interesting history or that have got interesting bodies. So for the XK120, 14150, we're really looking for those gear body, Pininfarina body, Bertone body. Good heavens. Some one-offs. Yes. Yeah. So there's a selection of those that we've already curated that are going to look fantastic on the lawns. Isn't it funny how the Italians really had their way with Jaguars? It's really interesting. As a purist, you might look at them and think, oh, that's all wrong. But something about them just appears so right. They've turned them into something else, something beyond what they were. That's not to say I don't love the original William Lyons designs, which I do. I think that the XK120 and 140 in particular are just sublime looking little cars. You look at that gear supersonic, for instance, and that's just an incredible piece of machinery. The Gia Supersonics were really some of the most beautiful and outlandish things of the era. Certainly the handful of Fiat's 8Vs that exist are some of the most cherished rarities. And the Jaguars more than that because there were fewer of them. How many did they make? Do you know? Well, there weren't a whole lot. Some of them they only made one of. I know that the Gia Supersonics, they made three of. That's what I thought. Bertone might have made a couple. Pininfarina might have made a couple too, I think. And then there's others as well. There's even a Drogo bodied Jaguar that I think started off its life as an E-Type. There's lots of these one-off cars, but when you think of Jaguar, you don't think of coach-built cars, really, generally. They were all series production cars that had factory bodies, and they all looked the same. So it's really great to be able to bring out cars like that, and not just one or two, but half a dozen of them and say, there's an era that's worth having a look at. And maybe some music from that era too, who knows? Don't worry about the music, that'll be happening too. What are the dates? The dates for Auto Royale are the 16th to the 18th of July, 2021. Well, we are looking forward to things getting back to normal sufficient that we can start to enjoy our car gatherings before that time. Oh, look, we can't wait. Here in England, which is very much a drive-oriented classic car movement, we're in winter now or going into winter now, so not so many cars being used. But even towards the end of summer and coming out of winter, we're all just gagging at the bit, trying to get our cars out of the garage and go to an event do something that's a bit special be with other car people we've missed that for a while there's been some events on and I think compared to other hobbies we've been actually quite lucky over here with a few Concours events on but we can't wait we're going to take a short break but we'll be right back a moment of your time a new podcast from Kurt Co Media currently 21 years old and today, I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my but dream. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being questioned. going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies, wonders to whom she should give the second dice. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find The beauty of working. rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in life. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kurtco.com slash a moment of your time. Welcome back to Cars That Matter. 
Let's talk about your garage and some of your own automotive passions. Paul, what kind of got you started car-wise and what do you work on today? My collection is nothing that is going to set the world on fire. I started my journey in the classic car world with a Mark II Jaguar. It's a car that I got when I was 20. It came about as a result of me being a passenger in a car accident. It's a silly story, but the long and short of it is that my parents came to visit me in hospital with a broken back in three different places after this car accident. They had seen the wreckage of the car and my mum actually sat at my bedside in the hospital and said to me, well, I've seen the wreckage. It's no good. We can't have you driving cars like that. What you need is a good solid car like a Jaguar. Well, I held her and my father to that promise. And at the age of 20, I was gifted a very cheap and somewhat shoddy Mark II Jaguar, which my dad then embarked on a seven-year restoration of. And I'm happy to say I've still got that car at 53. So it's had a long ownership with me. It's gone into its second restoration now. You have those cars in your life that come and go and you've got the ones that you regret letting go of. And then you've probably got the one or two that you'll never let go of. And that is probably one of the ones that I would never let go of. You have touched my heart because the Mark II Jaguar is a car that I was actually in an accident in. I was about seven or eight years old and my father had a 1962 Mark II, British Racing Green, tan interior. What an exquisite car. We got a little fender bender in that. Someone smacked us in an intersection, but the car survived and was, uh, of course, repaired. But what an elegant car. And it's always the wire wheels, the wooden dash, the little tray tables in the back seat used to fascinate me. I'd lower those and put little soldiers or something on them and play standing up in the back seat, which, of course, was unthinkable today in an era of child safety and whatnot. But that was a remarkable car. My dad loved that thing. He'd gone from Triumph to finally found a way to afford that Jag, although I do believe it did cause some fits. Restoring them is nothing like trying to keep them running. I remember him occasionally getting out and kicking the fuel pump in the trunk just to keep the gas flowing. Occasionally that thing would seize up, but everybody's got Jaguar stories. I'm sure you have a few of your own, Paul. In fact, exactly the same story as your dad needing to hit it with a hammer in the fuel pump. My father did the same thing. I remember him one time driving back with my mother from the Gold coast to Brisbane, which is where they lived in Australia, the fuel pump stopped running. So in fact, dad got into the boot of the car and had mum drive it home along the freeway with him <laughs> tapping the, uh, the fuel pump to keep it running. I mean, it's ridiculous. And yes, old cars, but old Jags in particular, <laughs> tend to stimulate this level of storytelling. Paul, I think there's no camaraderie like guys in Jaguar hell. But you know what, Robert? I mean, I've been lucky enough to not necessarily own, but certainly drive a lot of fabulous cars in my time in this classic car movement and I never get sick of looking at a Mark II. Isn't that car just the most amazing shape? I don't think it's ever been improved upon. Look, they're expensive to restore and you'd never get your money back if you were to restore one properly, but I don't think it's about that. I think some things are just beautiful and should be celebrated for that and I think the old Mark II Jag is one of them. What about other cars that might be on your radar, so to speak? I've got a dream garage like everybody else's, Robert. It's full of cars that are virtually unattainable. I've had some cars in my life that I've enjoyed and sold on and probably shouldn't have. For the Australians listening out there, I had this beautiful, absolutely never restored, an unmolested E.H. Holden station wagon, which was the ultimate surfing car. You'd have the surfboards on the roof rack and you'd have the mattress in the back and you'd be able to wind down that tailgate and that's how you'd spend your weekend. But I had one of these. It had never been touched. Beautiful car. 
and I sold it off for a ridiculously low amount of about two or three thousand dollars a few years ago. And shortly after that, the prices started to skyrocket. If I was to try to rebuy that car, it would probably cost me closer to 30 or 40 now. So that's a pretty good appreciation, pretty dumb move on my part. But looking beyond that into the future, I mean, nobody knows what the future will hold. But like I say, my dream garage is full of unobtainable masters. I'm a big Jaguar fan. And of course, I'd love to have something like an XK120 or a 140 in the garage. And that's obtainable. So, and that will probably come down the track. But an XKSS would be my dream car. That's my ultimate dream car. But I'm a big fan of cars with stories and not necessarily their ownership histories, but cars that have interesting development histories. Big fan of Lancia, for example, as a mark. What an unsung mark in America for the most part. I joined the Lancia Club in 1978, and I think you could count the members on two hands. Lancias are just underestimated and underappreciated here. But a fantastic story as a mark, too. I mean, so many engineering automotive firsts. It's incredible. I don't think any other brand quite lives up to what they achieved in the time that they were around and active. It's really true. Suspensions, gearboxes, and just the quality of construction. Talk about little jewel boxes. Those are amazingly built automobiles prior to the fiat ownership of the company. They're beautifully detailed and you're right. The workmanship is stunning. Certain models of them are very valuable now too. That Flaminia Supersport Zagato would be one that I'd love to have in the garage. Fabulous car. And not crazy money, I don't think, for what it is, particularly in terms of fairly small production run of cars like that. I love the old pre-war Bentleys, WO Bentleys. I don't think there's an Aussie car enthusiast that doesn't love the Bentley. And I'm a bit of a sucker for a 3098 Vauxhall as well. I think that in terms of that veteran era, that's where I tend to gravitate. But I love cars. I love looking at them. I'm more interested in design and aesthetic than I am in performance necessarily, which means that I tend to gravitate towards some pretty kooky cars sometimes. Some of the most interesting ones are actually the slowest. Do you look at the little Cisitalias or some of the wonderful little Fiats and Alphas of the small displacement engines, but they were remarkable things to look at and to drive, the little Oscars and on and on. You've mentioned them all. Those small engine Fiats and the Oscars, those sorts of things, I think are really interesting little cars. Arbuff is another genre as well, I suppose. 850 cc's of pure anger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what great cars, what ingenuity behind them. And that's what I really like. Quite often I'll be at a show saying, I really like that. And people are going, well, why? But to me, it's self-evident. I think that they're little gems and that's what I like. I like that sort of thing. It's easy to be blown away by a $20 million Ferrari. Everybody's blown away by that. But to find the beauty in small things, to find the beauty in what may be more common, I think is more enjoyable. You've really touched on something and I think most automotive enthusiasts would have to agree with you. And certainly that same sensibility applies to almost every arena of art, whether it's miniature painting or small intimate sculpture. Sometimes these things can be monumental in their artistic expression, and yet their physical dimension can be very, very diminutive. Really, it's the same way with music when you think about it. A symphonic explosion by Beethoven or Berlioz is one thing, but sometimes the more intimate pieces, the string quartets or the piano sonatas, those are the things that really kind of get you thinking more. So when I look at a little tiny car and wonder how good heavens a guy over 
five feet ten could even fit inside the thing, you realize sometimes those are the most magical and artistic expressions of the automotive arts. Yeah, well, the five foot ten guy couldn't fit into a Kuntash either. So. <laughs> That's a very good point. There's plenty of big cars that won't fit that person either. And I'm five ten. I know I've tried to get in one. But it's right. It's like what you say about music. We can listen to some fabulous Schubert or Mozart, but I'm going to get more out of a three minute Brian Wilson pop song than I am out of any of that. I'm going to get the intricacies and the complexities captured in that smaller moment. Me personally, I'll find that more beautiful. I can certainly imagine a lot of that Brian Wilson genius accompanied you with your Holden station wagon back in the day. I can't wait for some of this excitement to come to Wadston Manor when Auto Royale has its fling in July. This is going to be exciting and would love to learn more as the date gets closer. It's challenging times for any event organizer at the moment. We've got this whole COVID thing going on and here in the UK, we've just finished today our second lockdown. It's very challenging. Companies like mine, we have these big dreams and we're doing our very best to bring them to fruition through very difficult circumstances. And all of us are just waiting for that Hail Mary to say that it's all going to be okay. Once that happens, it's really, I think 2020, whilst economically it's going to be a year of a rebuilding and it's not going to be particularly exciting in that way, I think from an events industry point of view, broadly, and for the car movement more specifically, I think it could be a really exciting year because difficulty and adversity provides challenges for innovation. And when you start to innovate out of that necessity, then you can actually come up with really interesting things. I think with Auto Royale, that's really what we've put to the forefront of our thinking. Let's be innovative. Let's be different. How does everybody else do it? Let's not do that. Let's do something completely different. Someone asked me the other day, how are you different? I thought about it. I said, you know what? This is how we're different. If the other events are the queen, Auto Royale is the band queen. And I think that that actually tells you quite a bit because both of them iconic, both of them immensely famous, both of them doing exactly what they do to the perfection that they do it, but so completely different. They're like chalk and cheese. And that's what excites me. The last thing I wanted to do was come all the way from Australia to the UK and try to replicate something that other people were doing. That would be a waste of my time and energy. And I'd rather stay being a big fish in a small pond back there in the Antipodes. But to come here and do something completely different, to look at a problem from a different angle and come up with a different solution, I think that that's really exciting. The people that win from that are the members of that classic car community who come and experience it. They get to experience the type of event that they love and the passion that they have for the classic car movement, but they get to experience it in a completely different way to what they've ever expected. I certainly can't wait. Again, well worth investigating Auto Royale, R-O Y-A-L-E. There's an E on the end of that. That makes it royale.org. Look forward to circling back after your event in July of 2021. Soon to be upon us. Yes, it surely is. It's coming very quickly. Paul Mathers, I want to thank you for joining us today. Fascinating talking with an Australian transplant to the UK, someone who brings a lot of automotive enthusiasm with you and the vision for a new kind of Concorde d'Elegance and one that we heartily look forward to seeing. It's been great fun. Thanks for having me, Robert. Come back next time as we continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive.
This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross. Produced by Chris Porter. Edited by Chris Porter. Theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick. Additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross. Thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.